If you're considering going out of state, me and my partner do day trips. So we'll get on a 6 a.m. flight or whatever, the earliest flight that we can. And then we're back home by whatever, I don't care. Sometimes I'll hit the pillow at 11 p.m. at night. As long as I can do it in a day trip, that is one of our criteria because, you know, things could go wrong. Things have gone wrong where, you know, we have to check up on things or whatever. And it's much easier to, you know, get there within a day, especially if you have kids and a family. It's tough to, you know, plan multiple overnight trips and stuff like that. So, you know, that is one of our criteria. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you, the high-performing, high-earning, busy professional, how to build wealth on Main Street through real estate investing. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Anthony Scandariato. Anthony is a successful real estate investor who is based in northern New Jersey, but today invests out of state in several different markets. Today we're learning about how he came up through the real estate investing ranks, began to be successful in investing in his local market of northern New Jersey, and then eventually branched out. And today we're digging into that first true out-of-state property that he and his partners acquired in Clearwater, Florida. We're learning about how to evaluate a market, how to evaluate a property in terms of doing the physical due diligence actions to take. We also discuss managing a property out of market, what it takes to staff up a local property management enterprise and company, and so much more around doing your first deal truly out of market, what it takes to understand the market, evaluate a property. We also discuss investing in C-class versus B-class multifamily assets and so much more. Great multifamily investing conversation today. You're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to intaylor.com fill out the form, schedule a call. We will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Anthony Scandariato. Here we go. Anthony, thank you for joining us today. Let's dive right into it. Tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what you invest in, and then we'll go from there. Sure, Taylor. So thank you for having me on the show. It's going to be a fun one. So yeah, so as you said, my name is Anthony Scandariato. I am one of the co-founders of Red Knight Properties. We're a boutique, middle market, value-add, multifamily investment and property management company. Currently have about a thousand units, give or take. We would have had more, but we sold a lot recently. Under management, you know, give or take 150 million or so. And we're in six different states right now. I'm based in northern New Jersey. And for context, about maybe 40 minutes west of Midtown Manhattan. And, you know, we're focused on, you know, secondary slash tertiary, you know, mostly garden style, multifamily, one to two story brick, you know, acquiring and repositioning from long-term owners mostly. And, you know, I guess we're in six different states. We're in Florida, Ohio, Alabama, uh, up here in New Jersey, where we got started, Pennsylvania, give or take in New York. So, you know, I've worked in this industry for... Well, almost coming, I'll just round it up to 10 years, but it's not exactly 10 years yet. But, you know, so have, have been around. I, I used to work for another real estate operator acquiring class A multi-tenant office buildings before starting my company. So I saw a lot of uh, interesting deals there. And yeah, we're, you know, we've probably gone full cycle from buying to refinancing to disposing on, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14 deals over the past several years under the Red Knight umbrella. 
And we're, you know, still focused on the same thing we've always been focused on, which is that workforce housing, asset class, kind of like class C products that we can bring up to C plus, B minus through capital improvements and management, you know, inefficiencies. We do have a property management company, as I mentioned before, in-house. So we're somewhat vertically integrated. The only thing we don't have is really, oh, we do have construction now. So I guess we're fully vertically integrated to a point. So it's it's pretty exciting. It's a very challenging part of the business. But yeah, we got our feet wet in New Jersey. I started with the two-family house that I still own today via a house hack, which I'm sure your audience is somewhat familiar with. And just kind of built that up to about 70 units between me and my business partner, just the two of us in northern New Jersey, where we're, where we're from and based. And we're able to turn around and sold a few of those, refinanced a couple of those, and then started doing bigger deals, what we call syndicated deals, where we're bringing on, you know, mostly passive investor capital. And we're running the show day to day, me and my partner and our team that we built on the ground. So started with the 50 unit property, our first syndication, we did sell that in Northern New Jersey. I did really well on it. And yeah, fast forward to today, we're around a thousand units and, you know, in six different states. So hopefully that helps your introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Very helpful. And today I'd like to dive into your experience breaking into out of state investing and doing that first deal that was, you know, maybe more than an hour drive from home, right? It's it's a market yeah. that you had to get familiar with. A lot of our listeners live in more expensive areas that are harder to find deals in, like uh, Manhattan. You know, we've got uh, quite a few investors in the New York City area. So let's dig into that first deal that you did that was, you know, out of town, out of state, and what it looked like, how you went through the process, everything around. Yeah, I mean, we started out in New Jersey. Like I said, we built 70-unit portfolio in New Jersey, and we property managed ourselves, so we were able to get a hold on that. Our out-of-state deal was right over the border in Pennsylvania, so that was our first out-of-state deal. But even that was like an hour and 10 from us. It wasn't that bad. After that, I guess our real first out-of-state deal was a deal in Clearwater, Florida. We did sell that. For me, with the out-of-state, because I did work for another real estate sponsor, we did acquire office buildings in Florida, the Tampa Bay metro area. So I was pretty familiar with the market to begin with, so I wasn't like scared at all. The only thing that we had to do was you know, make a decision if we were going to grow our property management company and we decided to do that. And so we had to find the right staff and the team. And that was really built through referrals and just from being in the business. And, you know, we were able to be successful at that deal. And, you know, quite honestly, the management in Florida was better than the management we had locally. So, you know, after we bought that first out-of-state deal, we felt more comfortable acquiring more out-of-state, getting into different states. But the states that we're in, I was, I had some familiarity with already, whether I did a deal with them for the previous firm I used to work for, or my partner was involved in a certain state, you know, like Ohio, that I wasn't involved in and knew it really well. So there's always some familiarity with where we're investing. Makes sense. I think sometimes folks that want to invest out of state are a little hesitant to maybe start with areas that they already have familiarity with and at least see if those areas make sense and appreciate that that's what you did for that first true out-of-state deal uh, with Red Knight. So how did you approach, because you had done office building deals in that area before, but how did you approach you know, getting into that first multifamily in the Tampa area in Clearwater? Because it's fundamentally, it's it's different. You know the market, but it's still a, a different. And it's, it's a different beast. I mean, office is a lot harder. So 
was able to make connections in the office, you know, space on the investment sales side to develop relationships with brokers in Florida. And that's kind of how I got connected with finding that first Florida deal. There's another partner that sourced some of the deals for us as well. But, you know, it was really just leveraging the network that, you know, I built over the past, I think at that time it was like seven years, give or take. And, you know, people knew who I was. They knew my background. They might have interacted with me already in one way or the other. So, you know, they felt more comfortable, you know, awarding us deals and realizing that we have, you know, all our, all our stuff together in order to, you know, feel, make the broker feel comfortable we're going to close. So, you know, I, it's great to have familiarity that really, I really wasn't scared about it. I mean, for us too, and for your listeners, if you're considering going out of state, make sure you could, so me and my partner do day trips. So we'll get on a 6 a.m. flight or whatever, the earliest flight that we can. And then we're back home by whatever. I don't care. Sometimes I'll hit the pillow at 11 p.m. at night. As long as I can do it in a day trip, that's kind of our criteria as well. And, you know, hopefully I'll have to hop on two planes and it's kind of a direct trip and we can get a rental car and we can go to the property within a reasonable, you know, within an hour or, or so. So that is one of our criteria because, you know, things could go wrong and things have gone wrong where, you know, we have to check up on things or whatever. And it's much easier to, you know, get there within a day instead of, especially if you have kids and a family, it's tough to, you know, plan multiple overnight trips and stuff like that. So, you know, that is one of our criteria. Awesome. I really appreciate that criteria because that helps you narrow down the country and, you know, focus on certain areas and you probably fly out of Newark and down to Tampa and it's not a problem at all. No connections. So that's great. So is that what you did to do the physical due diligence on this property before you had closed? How'd you handle all that? Yeah. We spent the whole day there and obviously walked every single unit. You know, I mean, but the offer was made previously to really, we had another partner that kind of had more boots on the ground than us. So he took a look at it for us and thought it was a really good, compelling opportunity. And then uh, he didn't have much real estate experience. So it's kind of like, all right, well, what do you know? So I went down there and it turns out he was right and me and my partner. So um, we ended up moving forward with it. And then we came down again when we were officially under contract to walk every single unit and make sure we weren't getting into a mess. Nice. So when you walk every single unit, what kind of notes are you taking? What observations are you know you making? Are you planning? You know, walk us through the nitty gritty of walking all of those units. Very important. To yeah. Me. We have a checklist that we have pretty much. We take pictures of every single unit. We have, we use Happy Co Inspector app, which syncs with app folio building and a lot of property management. So we do use that to inspect the reunits, but we, you know, we, we, we look and make sure, quite honestly, we make sure that if our plan has capital expenditures involved, that we're kind of within that budget and, and okay, all the units that the seller, we've had to walk from deals because sellers uh, represented us. Okay. Uh, yeah, I renovated 70% of the units and then we go and he renovated like 10%. So obviously that increased our capital budget. And if he's not going to agree to a price reduction, then we're walking for the deal because that's misrepresentation. So we look at to see if the units are renovated, obviously, if that's a representation or if he says, I never renovated any units, that's fine. It's just, you know, we obviously double check, trust, but verify really, you know, foundational issues, you know, any water infiltration we're looking at, making sure that we check the age of the water heaters, we check the age of the HVAC system, you know, there's, you know, we see if all the appliances are functional or not. We see if the tenants are, you know, taking care of their place and they're clean. 
Or if there's a complete disaster, we make a note of that unit. Okay, we're probably going to have to look down at some point. So there's a lot of different things we look at. Okay. We have a checklist. So you have a, a checklist and you're willing to go back to a seller and say, hey, this wasn't quite as you had represented it. Let's talk about renegotiating the, the price. We, we've gone back. Yeah, of, of course. We don't like to walk from deals, but we, we've done that. We probably walk from maybe two or th- usually when we're under contract, you know, we, we usually close and not really if we don't close, it's, it's, it's on the seller. It's like, okay, there's an environmental reason you didn't tell us about. Or you misrepresented the amount of units that are actually done. Or like you told me that you were going to get the pool operational and it's not. And now I got to put a hundred grand into the pool. Give me a hundred grand or I'm walking for the deal. So it's, it's stuff like that. Is there anything that sticks out to you that is like, I don't care how much the seller comes down in price or what they have to say about it. This particular issue is a total deal breaker for me. Yeah. Environmental, environmental, environmental total deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. Not disclosing that, and you know, especially you could kind of tell when a seller is a little bit desperate too. They're like, "Oh well, you know, we're not going to waive environmental, but you need to go hard on your money. Or I'm going to give this to somebody else." So I said, "Okay, well, give it to somebody else." So we're not taking that risk. And it turns out they never sold the property; they didn't have anybody else. So yeah, there's been a couple times in, in, in that matter, and and you could tell it's good to go when it's raining, and we love to go when it's raining, so you can check out the basements and see. If water is coming in anywhere and check out the root and if there's any roof leaks. So, you know, or if the, the grass is getting wet and it's kind of retaining water and it's not going anywhere and it's not really pumping. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things where you can, you can look out for and do diligence. Okay. So is there anything in particular, just to kind of put brackets around the environmental piece, you kind of talked about flooding and water, you know, uh, accumulation, that kind of a thing, but anything else that might come up in that environmental uh, phase that has top, right? Because usually you order reports and they're, you know, if you're not an expert, you have no idea what the hell you're talking about, but you know, any oil tanks or, you know, any, any, any possible, you know, awareness of any oil tanks, you know, definitely figure out and get a sweep for that. You know, if you could do your due diligence and bring your environmental person or structural engineer, it's really structural. You could bring a structural engineer with you. You know, that's ideal. You might have to pay him a couple hundred bucks, but it's totally worth it because it's going to save you in the long run. But yeah, environmental is tough. I mean, if they have a septic tank, if they have, you know, check out the condition of the leach field, you know, check out, you know, it's kind of, you can't really check the condition of the septic tank without a test. So make sure that, you know, you, you take care of that. But you know, you don't really see a ton of that in multifamily because it's more higher density. Some more rural areas you will. So it all depends on your market, but there are certain things to just really look out for. Okay. So as you begin to acquire, you know, units in a given area, we can stick with the Clearwater uh, example, and you look to build your local property management team. How many units do you think about or any other criteria that you need to have a critical mass so that you can start hiring people rather than outsourcing to another, you know, third party. Yeah. Yeah. If we're in a new market, we like to start with at least a hundred if we can, because that allows us to have at least one leasing agent, one maintenance guy or girl, and maybe one vent, one contractor partner. So basically three people. So yeah, generally a hundred units. And then when we're in a market, we, we do like to grow around it because if we buy 100 units, then we can buy a 50, we can buy a 24, we can, you know, we can buy whatever we want to build up more scale. We've done that in certain markets. We didn't do that in Clearwater. That's kind of why we sold. Just the market got like really, really hot in like 22, I think. And we're just like, we can't buy anything here anymore. So, uh, so we sold it. And, but there are other areas where we, we, we grew 
and are actually still continuing to grow a portfolio and sure we'll exit it at some point. But yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why we decide to sell as well, just because if we can't find anything within like a reasonable amount of time, a year or two in that market, then we'll just, we'll just sell it. Cause it's not gonna, it's not worth it for us to continue to operate it um, and manage it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cash out and move on to the next one. So, but as far as like staffing and being able to find sufficient quantities of qualified employees, things like that, you know, in the past, certain deals I've done in certain markets kind of struggled with being able to find enough quality employees who would stick around, you know, show up, do the work, all that kind of a thing. How do you think about that in your business as you approach a new market? You know, do you look at the labor market beyond just establishing demand for the property, but also being able to find your own employees? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, we're always trying to invest in markets where there's a, where there's a decent talent pool that we can pull from, you know, from many different directions. So yeah, we definitely look at the labor market in each area where we're in to see if there's, like you said, enough demand drivers to have this type of employee. And we obviously need to figure out, okay, what we're going to need, you know, what we're going to be, ha- what we're going to have to pay them, you know, compensation wise and how many available jobs are there for this type of position in the area. So we do look at all those factors. It's definitely challenging. We try our best to retain our uh, property management employees. We do, you know, we've done pretty well, I think, at retention. I think. Yeah, we've had to fire uh, quite a bit, quite honestly, but yeah, we always usually, usually it's on takeover if we you know, buy a property and let's say the seller property managed, you know, the asset where there was maybe a third party and we had to take the employees, it never works out. I- I'm sorry, it's just every, in my experience, it's never worked out, at least because we're trying to get in there and change things and a lot of times they don't want to change. So, you know, it's been multiple occasions where we've had to switch and it sucks because, you know, you put a, your time and your effort to try to give these people a chance. And then, you know, it, they only, you know, gets to a certain point where you need to move on. It's, it's always a challenge. It's still a challenge today with retention, but we do try to incentivize our employees with, you know, quarterly bonuses. And, you know, we have a communication channel where we're trying to give them words of affirmation, like you're doing a good job, like, you know, just make sure that they're valued because I think, you know, you know, our, our employees like to hear stuff like that. And if we're refinancing a property or we selling, we're selling a property, we do bonus them pretty substantially for the type of role. So it does give them an incentive to stay with us until that business plan is completed. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as, you know, investing in C-class properties today, earlier in my investing career, I started with C-classes and eventually I got kind of frustrated with, frankly, how much work they take. And, you know, so I moved uh, to, to B-class properties, just a different strategy. Are you still able to find, you know, C-class properties that are compelling considering all the price appreciation that's happened and everything, plus all the work that C-class properties tend to need as far as deferred maintenance, CapEx, all that kind of a thing. Yeah. We've been buying, I mean, we're still picking up some C's, but and quite honestly, it's, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's, it's definitely gravitating more towards B minus P right now. We have a couple of deals that we bought recently that I would probably consider more I still think they're more workforce housing, but they're, you know, definitely better quality. So yeah, it does, does a lot of it. Quite honestly, that's, that's the reasons, one of the reasons why we've sold a f- quite a bit. I mean, we sold like, you know, cause we took care of the cosmetic. We did really well on them, but we took care of the cosmetic renovations needed, taking the Clearwater deal, for example. They have, you know, individual HVAC units on every single roof. It was a 76 unit building, 76 uh, HVAC units that we didn't touch. But we knew we, had to, we knew we were going to have to address them. We had the capex allocated for it, but we were just like, 
If we refi this, that's going to eat up all our cash flow. What's the point of holding this? You know, this building was built in 1976. So why not make a 45% IRR net to our investors and then move it into something else a little bit more, like you said, more, less deferred maintenance or, you know, or do it again into, you know, a B, I think we bought like a B minus asset, you know, after we sold that, that we were able to roll everybody that one, two, into. So yeah, I would agree. It's a lot of work, which is fine because, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be easy, but you know, you got to make those decisions too, you know, and know when you're at a point that, it, you know, all the CapEx coming up that you didn't address is going to bite you at some point. So that's, yeah, definitely why we sold quite a bit of our C properties. Yeah, it's, it's in my mind, C is not quite as compelling now as it was six or eight years ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago. So I'm glad you brought up property vintage the age of the property when you say a property built in the 1940s my stomach starts to hurt a little bit that's just way too old how about 1890 i bought 1890 before i would say it'd be a hard pass for me but how how do you how do you think about that today especially as maybe you're moving up from uh, c to b and revising the strategy a bit with changing market conditions yeah it's just that the numbers work. Does it's it, 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 it honestly? It's more about the story now. It's more about what's the story with the seller. Why is the seller selling? You know, have they done anything? But we don't like buying from other sponsors. We really don't. I like buying from long-term owners who have never. We just bought a building that the guy's never sold it. The guy developed it. He's never raised the rents ever in thirty years. Wow. Ever. But he's never touched the building either. So he's never put. You know, he's never upgraded the. You know, kitchens and the bathrooms and the flooring, like he's just never done any of that stuff. But it's, you know, it's a C asset. So there, and it, if you can still get it at a good basis and a decent cap rate, it's it's going to make sense as long as your stabilized yield on costs is going to be, you know, double digits. So we still, you know, we still look at C. There's still good opportunities and we, we, we had success there. Is it my preference? No, but if they're out there, then, then definitely. I mean, we bought a couple of buildings in Pennsylvania that are, you know, I think there were one was 1920 and, you know, like the other one was 1940. But I mean, the rents were like $600 for a two bedroom. And this was like even before the crazy COVID inflation. I mean, the average rent for that type of unit should have been 1200 and we were buying it at like 80 a door. So, you know, for us, we were like, all right, well, this makes a lot of sense no matter what. We know the vintage is old. Let's account for the capex anyway. And let's just pump the rents up and then hopefully we can just get out of it. And that's exactly what we did. And we did really well on it. So there are opportunities out there. And kind of to your point, you know, you know, I think more investors are gravitating towards B for sure. And there should be opportunities there as well. But it's just like in any market, you know, there, yeah, there was a lot of appreciation. But if the story is good and you're buying it at a good basis relative to the comps, and I'm not talking 20, you know, I'm not talking like the crazy inflated comps then you should still capitalize on, on it. Makes sense. I think you see class, you kind of have the compelling story and you also kind of have to have the the stomach for a C-class property, if that makes sense in, in, in many cases. So before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show, just like to wrap it up and sum up some of your wisdom for investing in multifamily you know, out of state from a distance. What are a couple of factors that you look for in a market to begin to consider it or to, you know, write it off? Yeah. I mean, number one is, like I said before, having some familiarity with it, whether that's research or on the grounds, on, on the ground knowledge, 
in any capacity. That's, I think, number one. And if you're comfortable with the market, don't just buy it because you saw, okay, you know, Kansas City was in the news yesterday and as a top, whatever, inflation or inflated rental growth market. Okay, that might just be a quarter. Like, like you know, I, I don't know anything about the market. So I'm just throwing that out there. But there are a lot of people that have shiny objects under them. They just don't know which market to focus on. So something you're comfortable with, something I talked about the distance being being a factor for us. You know, that as well as, you know, the standard demographic information that as an investor you should be looking at, whether that's in-net migration, where the jobs, what type of employment base, is it diverse? You know, what type of, you know, landlord-tenant environment is it? Is it pro-landlord? Is it pro-tenant? So there are a lot of different factors that we look at in, in evaluating the market. Nice. But a lot of the things that are pretty tried and true factors that folks are generally going to look for, understanding the market, economic facts, uh, landlord-tenant friendliness, things that make a lot of sense. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Anthony, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Best investment ever made, maybe marrying my wife. So that's that's a, a different conversation, but it's good to have a partner that's on board with what, what you're trying to do and, and, and achieve in, in your career. And, you're in, you know, whether that's starting your own business or, you know, you have a full-time job, definitely to have a partner with you along the way is very helpful. But I could talk about real estate investment, but that's a different different story. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know, I same for me, uh, my wife. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin and the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment? Well, for the real estate, we haven't had any co-ban, which is good. We've had challenges. That's for sure. I wouldn't say I'm a health freak, but I don't like buying junk food. So <laughs> I'm a big pretzel fan. So anytime there's pretzels around, I just kind of eat everything. So my wife likes to surprise me with pretzels. And so in terms of those investments, junk food is, is, is a bad investment. Don't, don't stock up on junk food. You got to keep your energy up because this, this business is high energy. Fair enough. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. To have good partners, you know, to have a trusted team around you, your business partners, your, your, especially with the management to have people who you trust on the ground. We've learned a lot of lessons just from the property management, for sure. A little bit different from a lot of sponsors, but, you know, having people you trust and we've gotten burned before, uh, we always were able to recover, but, you know, having that trust level in the beginning and having that experience so you don't make those same mistakes again is invaluable. Nice. Nice. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, get in touch, if they want to track you down, anything like that, where can they find you? Yeah. So uh, the best way to do that, we have a um, free ebook we're giving out right now. It's called How to Leave Your 9 to 5 and Achieve Financial Independence. You can find that on our website. It's rednightproperties.com. You just put your name and email in there. And then once you get that email, it'll have my contact information. It'll have my, my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn handle. And yeah, you can schedule a one-on-one with me if you want to connect. But I'm also on social media too, just Anthony Scandariato or my company uh, properties, pretty much every platform you can think of it. We have a podcast too, Taylor. It will be, uh, it was, was on. And, uh, you know, well, you can check us out at Discovering Multifamily. That's on iTunes, pretty, you know, Spotify, pretty much everywhere you can think of. So definitely check out that episode. 
Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.